This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. In this episode, we're talking to Randy Rodriguez, the first enterprise Salesforce customer and one of the best sales mentors you could ever hope to meet. In our conversation, Randy shares stories about the early days of Salesforce, how he reinvented his career during the 09 banking and mortgage crisis, and why protecting your mental health is so critical in business and in life. Ready to get customer obsessed? Randy Rodriguez. I think yeah. we have a lot of listeners out there that have probably crossed paths with Randy over the years. He's going. He's like the Energizer Bunny. <laughs> Every but, time you turn around, there's Randy, and we Benjamin all love it. Button too. He's like getting younger by the day. <laughs> It's all, that med- old- it's, all, it's all that meditation he does now. I think I'm officially older than Randy now, and I used to be quite a bit younger. <laughs> He's going to teach us the ways during our interview. <laughs> <laughs> one funny Randy story is I remember one year we used to have this event that we called the director's retreat. And like our directors and above would like all get together. It's generally in the fall. And we'd go to a location and spend a few days together and pretend to be working. And one Mm -hmm. year I decided, okay, whichever region is the number one region, that leader gets to pick where the director's retreat is going to be. And we'd gone to some fabulous places in the past. Like we had one in Manhattan where we all stayed at the Ritz Carlton down in Battery Park. That was in like 2009. We did one out in Sun Valley, Idaho, when I happened to be living out there for a few months. And that was amazing. And this particular year, Randy's region was the number one region. And so it was a few months before we were supposed to do this thing. And I went to Randy and I said, you get to pick. And you know, Randy's a Midwest guy. And I had read about this place called Mackinac Island. So I'd read about in the past, it was a pretty historic place. I think it used to be where all the auto execs used to go. It was an island up in Michigan. And I said to Randy, I said, "Uh, what about Mackinac Island? He goes, oh, Mackinac's great. It's beautiful. There's like an old hotel there. I forget the name of it, but some beautiful old hotel. So we booked it and we went to Mackinac Island. But we went in like late September and Mackinac is like a summer vacation place. And I think we had to like fly in and we took a ferry and it was beautiful when we got there. But the funny thing about where we were staying, I think it was called like the Grand Hotel maybe, is because it was off season, it was basically a bunch of senior citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thousands of them on this island because it was like the season was over. Right. And um, I'll just never forget like the look on like Lou Fox's face when we were standing in line for the buffet and he was in between like two octogenarians. And he's looking <laughs> at me like, what are we doing here? <laughs> but Randy, I think is like the quintessential He has a great belief system. When he started to work for us, we gave him almost nothing. We didn't give him anything more than a email address. And he built a business out of it. It was pretty amazing. I'm sure we're going to hear a ton about Randy's journey in building that part of Blue Wolf. And I think he's got a pretty great story about how you hired him in the first place uh, that I'm looking forward to. So uh, let's bring him on. So Eric, how are you? This is like a pinnacle in my career here. All of a sudden I'm on the customer obsessed podcast. That's like a magic moment here. 
So, you know, you've had some amazing guests, some I've worked with, some I don't know. Everybody is entrepreneurs or have something very brilliant to say. And, you know, it sort of uh, makes me go, well, why am I here? So it's great, though. I love it. Well, we got to figure that out over the next 45 minutes here or so. Where are you right now? Are you in Detroit or Chicago or elsewhere? This is my office back in Detroit, yes. How are things in Detroit? I think things are progressing. I mean, the COVID definitely took a big, big bite out of the downtown Detroit's resurgence because there was a lot of positive things that were happening up until then. And, and you know, I, I gave up the DAC a couple of years ago around when COVID started. So I don't get downtown quite as much as I used to, but there's still a lot of development happening, still a very, you know, sort of thriving restaurant scene that's, that's emerging. Detroit is significantly better than it was 10 years ago, but it's still a work in progress. I'm excited for this whole electronic vehicle product cycle that the big automakers are coming out with. Like we've actually been doing quite a bit of work with Ford and it's pretty exciting what they're doing with the Ford F-150, Lightning with the Mach-E and it's going to be good for the auto industry. It's going to be good for Detroit. Obviously, Tesla has like jumped out ahead in that race, but there's room for a lot of players. And I think the fascinating thing is, you know, the Ford F-150 is the most popular truck in the world. Yes. If we fast forward three or four years, five years, and the majority of those are electric, and they're driving around middle America, they're driving around the South, they're, I mean, Tesla basically owns the coasts, but Ford owns America, Chevrolet owns America. And if these product cycles actually take off, like I think they're going to, it's gonna transform how we think about automobiles. And I think that's gonna benefit your town. I think it will benefit. And I think it's an interesting perspective on what it takes to drive innovation and business model change. If you go back a period of time, General Motors actually introduced the EV1, the first electric vehicle, like 20 years ago. And they actually hmm. made two attempts at it and wound up canceling it because of a lack of demand, because they think timing is everything. The battery technology wasn't where it is today. So you see a lot. And also just the idea of incubating innovation inside of a big company like General Motors or Ford or Chrysler, I mean, it's really hard. And I think it takes like a Tesla to come in and be that kind of disruptor. The domestic auto industry was very inwardly focused for a long period of time, and they got hammered by foreign competition. And then you get hammered again by Tesla. And I remember, Eric, you probably won't remember this, but when I first joined Blue Wolf, you had a holiday party at the giraffe in Midtown. I had just started, I'd been on the job for like two or three months and I met a lot of people from Blue Wolf and I met Glenn Stoffel for the first time, right? So I'm talking to Glenn and I start mentioning Detroit, I start doing the auto talk and I can just feel <laughs> Glenn going, that's just old technology, old businesses, old industries, dying cycle. We started talking about Tesla at that point in time and of course, at that point in time, I was like, they, they won't make a dent, right? They won't make any impact. It's just interesting now to look back 20 years later and see all the profound change that's happened in the industry. Well, it reminds me of the software industry back in like 2000, 2001, when all of the on-premise software companies like the Oracles and the SAPs and the MicroStrategies and the Cognos and Informatica, and like I could go on and on, JD Edwards, PeopleSoft. They all were building on-prem software and they spent most of their time trying to figure out how to get the software to work on all these different computing environments 
that yep. customers would have to buy. And it seemed like the model that would be in place forever, just like the combustion engine seemed like it would be in place forever. Well, what was going on back then? There was a little company named Salesforce that yep. was inventing this concept of cloud computing and NetSuite was right next to them. Fast forward to today, it has improved the software industry dramatically because you do not come to market with a software product unless it's in the cloud, unless it runs on AWS or Google or Azure, right? So the disruptors are the ones that actually improve the world and improve the way we do things because, you know, General Motors probably would have just liked things like it was. Absolutely. But competition is what, what drives innovation. They act as accelerators, right? And I, I think, you know, I was always kind of an early adopter of technologies. My initial introduction to Salesforce was super early. I was always enamored with that. I, I would go to San Francisco and get all fired up in the early 2000s around what they were attempting to do. And I would come back feeling like there's, there is a crowd of young people taking turf. And I would come back to Detroit and interact with the people in General Motors, the people in my automotive world. And I felt like, and here is a bunch of older people protecting turf, right? And I just felt like there was a shift that I could feel that was palatable. And after a couple of years, I felt like I was on the wrong side, right? It takes an outsider to really drive innovation because newer companies can be bold and be unrestrained. And in trying to incubate that inside a traditional firm, many times that idea gets quarantined, it gets put into the sidelines, and it's really tough to give it the room to grow. Because it's not going to help you make your next quarter. I'll tell you the opposite side of the story you just told, and I don't think I'm embellishing here. I think this is actual fact. You were working at General Motors Auto Finance, right? G or Auto Corporation? GMAC, right? Right, GMAC. And you were trying to figure out how to track deals and contacts and accounts. And you were on a flight. What would this have been, like 2004, 2005? Oh, earlier oh. than that, 2001. Pre-going public. So 2001, you were working for GMAC. You're on a plane. There's a magazine in the plane, like, pocket. And you pull out a copy of Selling Power magazine. That's true. The publisher is Gerhard Schwantner. I know Gerhard. He's a dear old friend of mine. And Salesforce, no one knew who Salesforce was back then. It was salesforce.com. Used to buy out the back cover for like five grand a month or whatever the number was. Elizabeth Pinkham, who ran marketing at the time, could tell you what that advertisement used to cost her. And it was like 1-800-NO-SOFTWARE. We're a CRM system. You'd never heard of it before, right? Yep, that is 100% true. You ripped the ad out. You went back to your office. You called 1-800-NO-SOFTWARE. Brian Millam probably answered the phone. Brian was like number six employee at Salesforce and was an early sales guy there, uh, as was our dear friend Greg Kaplan. And you bought, didn't you end up, end up buying like 500 seats or something? That's a 100% true story. I was sitting on a Northwest flight, believe it or not, when they were still around. We had tried to build a big affinity call center initiative and spent millions of dollars in consultants and in on-premise deployments and in trying to build something. And we scrapped the entire project and there were a few assets that were assigned to me. And I was trying to figure out how to run these assets. And you're right. I was taking off on a flight, saw the magazine, tore out the ad, kept it in my briefcase for a couple of weeks bought some licenses, and then within three years had like 600 seats. And we built our affinity program into it. 
change the business model. What would have taken me a year and a half to spec out with General Motors' internal IT environment, took me about 60 days to get up and running, 90 days to get out to users, and I was hooked from then on. And years later, I was at an executive summit sitting at a luncheon or a dinner and telling that story and some woman jumped up and said, oh, I've got to tell Mark. And it was Elizabeth Pinkins sitting at the table with me. And she said, someone answered the ad. Someone saw my ad. Where's Mark? I remember that. So we've had Glenn Stoffel on this podcast and I dubbed Glenn the first Salesforce consultant. I don't care what anyone else says. I'll argue you until you're, we're blue in the face. Glenn Stoffel was the first Salesforce consultant. And now there are 150,000 of them globally. Actually, there are more than that. So we've had him on the show. We've had Lou Fox on the show. Lou Fox was the first Salesforce developer. He was the first. Now there are hundreds of thousands of developers in the world. Randy Rodriguez was the first Salesforce customer. He was the first real Salesforce customer. You tell the story about going to San Francisco and getting energized and seeing all this disruption going on and going back to Detroit. Let me tell you the story that was going on on the Salesforce side of things. You were flying in and they were like, holy shit, this guy bought 500 licenses. That was unheard of back then. Their biggest customer was like six people. You were the first enterprise Salesforce customer. Yeah. And one of the things that Salesforce did so well back then was they welcomed you in and they encouraged you to tell the story. And I remember the first time you and I met, we were at an analyst briefing at Dreamforce. It was probably the first or second Dreamforce. There were 500 people there and they put us all at tables to talk to analysts. I was one of the first, you know, I had the first consulting firm. You were the first enterprise customer. We didn't know why we were there. I don't even think they told us in <laughs> an analyst briefing. But we I were telling that. stories and the analysts were eating it up going, who the hell are these guys? And it's just interesting to see how companies build a passion and take off and disrupt because Tom Siebel at that point in time, when you and I were at that analyst briefing, he was probably briefing other analysts, telling them that Salesforce was a joke. 100%. Telling them it was a toy, telling them that it wasn't built for the enterprise. Meanwhile, right in San Francisco, here was the first enterprise customer telling the story to Gartner, Forrester, IDC, whoever, whoever else would listen. And it's a reminder that whatever industry you're in, whatever you're doing, you know, you're always thinking about the biggest competitors that should squash you, but you should never forget the young disruptors who could eat you up if you take your eye off the ball, right? And I remember that time really well. I mean, it was also a seminal event in my life. I was very, very fortunate to have that happen because I've, I've told this story, you've heard this too, you know, that I was able to cultivate a relationship with Salesforce, early stage, was lucky enough to be involved in the executive summits, met all the early stage Salesforce leaders at the time. They were Jim all Steele. kind and gracious. Jim Steele, yeah. Susan St. Ledger, Dave Rudnitsky, yeah. you know, you could go on yeah. and on down the list, right? It was a very, very fortunate time for me. And I needed that because as you know, in 2007, 2008, I tell this story, the world changed, the world melted down, right? We had a banking crisis. We had an automotive crisis. General Motors was in bankruptcy. We had a real estate crisis. We had a mortgage lending crisis. And Randy Rodriguez worked for the mortgage lending unit 
of an automotive finance company in downtown Detroit, Michigan in 2008. And it was, I had a daughter in private school. I had, you know, a spouse who didn't work. I'm just an ordinary guy from a small little town. And it was one of the scariest periods of time in my life because General Motors then had been partially acquired by a company called Cerberus. And all of a sudden we went from running programs for the biggest affinity base in the world to suddenly, you know, having sweetheart deals for the minority shareholder. All of a sudden the politics changed almost instantaneously. And there was nothing for me. I had no opportunity. I had no job prospects. I had one thing, really. I had this great relationship with this tiny company and John Nantaw, who was my rep at the time and a tremendous Salesforce rep, he saved me a block of time to have lunch with Jim Steele in Detroit at the Capitol Grill when Jim was in town one day and went out and had talked to Jim and Jim said, you ought to talk to this guy, Eric. He's got an office in San Francisco, he's got an office in New York, and he's got nothing in between. And that's what I decided I was going to do. You know, that's what I wanted to do. And even though I was in Detroit, I always thought, you know what, I could run Chicago for that. I could build the Midwest for them someday. And I had to chase you for a long time, but then we made it work. I remember you coming into our office and sitting there, and it's great to hear you tell the story in that way, because I can visually see us in the conference room on 225th Avenue. This is before we moved to the office on 26th Street. And Jim had referred you in. And we had met. I remembered you from meeting you at Dreamforce. And and I remember you sitting in there, Randy. And honestly, at that point in time, I was probably too young to understand the magnitude of what was going on financially in the country. I certainly was too naive to understand your individual situation there in Detroit. And I was a selfish entrepreneur going, how can this guy help me sell more Salesforce projects? Literally, that's all I would think about during that entire conversation. And you nailed it. For a man that was under duress and stress and worry, and you you nailed it. And I think that's a lesson for everyone. Like We're all going to have our moments of despair and panic, but we're all in this together. And you just were yourself. and, And then we definitely strung you along. I think I hired you as a contractor for a while. Is that right? You you did hire me as a contractor for a while, but you paid all my Cobra, which was amazing. But I have been fortunate enough to win a bunch of business while during my time at Blue Wolf. Some were small, some were big. But inside, I used to always think to myself, the best sale I ever made was to Barrage. I was a a mortgage guy in Detroit, Michigan. I talked this technology guy in New York into hiring me. That's a sale. (laughs) And I remember you sitting there. I said, I said, uh, I mean, I kind of knew what was going on. And and Jim had briefed me a little bit. And I was like, well, you know, what else are you looking at right now? And you said to me, I got a meeting downtown at JP Morgan. You know, it's something I'm looking at that's pretty hot. And you walked out the door and I was like, to this day, I'm like, did he really have a meeting at JP Morgan? That's a hundred percent true story. (laughs) That is absolutely a true story because I had feelers out in every different direction. Talked to Dun & Bradstreet, went a few other places. But what I didn't tell you was I did have that meeting and in about 15 minutes, we knew that was fizzling out, that that wasn't going to be a fit for me. (laughs) I didn't think I had to share that part of it. But going back to that period of time, you were talking about the Seabulls and the on-premise players. And if you remember those first formative years with Salesforce, we weren't selling 
features and functions. We weren't selling benefits. We were selling trust. We were explaining what a cloud-hosted solution meant. We were explaining what multi-tenancy meant, right? And the other thing, I don't know if you probably don't know this, but about that same period in time, I actually read a book called The Big Switch, and it was written by a futurist called Nicholas Carr, and it changed mm -hmm. my thinking here entirely because what he actually did was he made a parallel between utility-based production of electricity in the 1800s and the conversion from a generator-based economy to a utility-based economy and how it democratized the access to electricity and how the world changed because of that. And he said at that point in time, cloud would do the same thing, that the fiber optics networks and the ability to transform would democratize the access to technology in the way that utilities did for electricity. So back then, if you were a 10 person buggy shop, suddenly you could stay open all night and produce electricity and keep your lights on the same way a 500 person, because you didn't have to buy a generator and you didn't have to wire your building. And that he made that parallel and reading that book, I realized that this wasn't just a job opportunity. This might actually be the wave of something, right? So I was already enamored with Salesforce, but that was a real validator for me that there might be something big. So one of the things that I am really interested in hearing more about from you, Randy, has to do with the, the people side of things. So many of your posts and everything that you share in the world of LinkedIn deal a lot with mental health, motivation, training, all of these things about how we kind of connect and find value on our teams as individuals. And one of the things I'm really interested to hear more from you about is that there's an entire generation now who is entering the workforce after the pandemic has really revolutionized how and where we work. How do businesses need to adapt to build a motivated and productive culture with this new type of employee? Uh, so that's a big question. We've spent a lot of time <laughs> on all of that. I'll, I'll break it up into maybe a couple of different blocks here. Let's take the last one first and then first, and then I'll come back to mental health and mindset yeah. and some of those. We've had over the last few years, so many different assets and tools that could allow us to work anywhere. And if you were in our piece of the world, the Salesforce world, I think we were very comfortable in that sort of virtual online work anywhere kind of environment, probably outpaced the rest of the industry by a long stretch, right? If you And, and then COVID comes and then everything changes. And this compression and this need to virtualize yourselves um, kind of emerges. But um, a, lot of those, a lot of those technologies, whether it was Zoom, video conferencing, whether it was companies like Mural who could do virtual collaboration, you know, there was, there was less awareness of all of that. And I think COVID kind of pulled all of that out, forced people to adopt new things that we're gonna hang on to, that aren't going to go away. But I think where we struggled we struggled in that the change management of that was slow. The people aspect of that was slow. The mm -hmm. way companies wanted to run their businesses was slow to evolve with it. I think, I think the, a lot of the management philosophies that you've had when you were, could be together in an office building, you know, maybe sometimes more of a command and control kind of environment, that doesn't suit the norms of today that doesn't suit the norms of a younger generation who have grown up with collaboration tools and um, who have more familiarity and comfort with technology and 
think of their relationship as being with technology, not necessarily the school they went to or the church that they went to or the stores where their parents shop. Technology is their natural relationship. And so that's, there's, a, there's, there's an incorporation of that that um, businesses, I think, have to step up and continue to understand how do we create virtual cultures that are more sustainable, uh, that are more attractive, uh, that take advantage of, you know, the great resignation isn't really the great resignation as much as it is um, a, a wider range of options for people now, you know, and that translates into all kinds of ways from the way in which you recognize employees and the way in which you think about them in terms of output rather than time sometimes mm-hmm. um, to how you manage Zoom calls. You know, you hear so much about a Zoom call well, you lose all of this. You lose the association. You lose the connectivity. You don't have that interpersonal relationship. But a lot of that is also because when you go to a meeting, you've got an hour block for your meeting, but you also have this fuzzy layer of time around where you're walking in, you're shaking hands, you're small talking, you're politically gauging. And then you go into your meeting and you've got your 20 slides of PowerPoint that you're going to go through and you've time blocked it within that hour. Well, we've taken that same 20 slide deck and tried to just lift and shift it into a video conference. Mm-hmm. And, and we haven't built any time for that little warm and fuzzy layer around that. We've cut that piece of it out. And, and, and that just doesn't work. Your presentation styles in virtual environments, it's, it's, this is a TikTok environment. You have to give um, slices of content. You have to give slices of information, short, short windows, more time to, have free flow communication, less presentation time, you know, and, and I'm thinking, I'm just talking about the video conferencing aspect of it here for a moment. But when you think I want everybody to turn your cameras on so that I know you are present, that is the wrong orientation. It's your job to be entertaining enough in a virtual environment that people want to be dialed in and want to be listening. The burden is on the presenter to tell a compelling enough story to have everybody's attention because you cannot impose your will to say for this hour, you're going to be dialed in. You're going to be watching that people people have other options today. I'm sorry. You were going to ask me. Oh, no, I, I was just going to add on. I think and you hit the nail on the head, right? It's about the stories that you tell. How do you make your content engaging and how do you start to think outside of the box and find new ways of connecting in live digital sessions versus the traditional in-person meeting flows, as you mentioned, right? So it's about, you know, cutting things up and, and shaking loose old habits. And, you know, is this, you know, kind of the, it's so interesting, right? Because in a virtual setting, it seems as though, you know, a slide deck would be kind of the perfect medium because everyone can see it on their screen and there's no need to to get closer and, and all of these things. But in reality, you know, there's so much more that you can do in terms of being creative with your presentations. And uh, because digital technology and digital media Give us an example, digital what, media is so, so flexible. Like, I mean, maybe maybe you incorporate you know, instead of these static slides, maybe you incorporate some short videos. Maybe you do a, a voiceover kind of thing. I don't know. There, there. I, I think that there are better ways to go about it than kind of these static individual pieces. I'm going to brag for a second. Mm-hmm. I hate doing this, but I will. And I won't take credit for it. 
because we had people in our organization like the Karen Freeds of the world and Kim Morrow that like taught us this shit. Like, and this was a long time ago, folks. This was, when did we leave Blue Wolves? Five years ago, four years ago, whatever. Every meeting started on time. Every meeting had an intro to it. There was a who, what, why, how, outcome. Every meeting ended on time. Everyone had a role. Everyone spoke. Like I sit in a lot of meetings today where you get these voyeurs in the upper deck and you don't know who they are and why are they here and they don't talk? Like, why are you here? <laughs> like, is this, we actually did not realize the value of what we were learning inside of that organization because we didn't have a lot of bad meetings. I didn't think. Now I ran the place, so I probably am in my own echo chamber, but I feel like we did that well. You did it better than most based on the experience we've had, you know, and I think the interesting thing about having time with Salesforce, especially if you're a salesperson, is that, yes, we were involved with the technology, but you also, it was like a master class in learning the sales cultures of many different organizations, right? We got to see a lot of things. Where I think we do lose, when I think about the Blue Wolf experience, I think in particular about the period of time from like 16 to 18, 2016 to 18, when I was in Chicago, and it was really a lightning in a bottle kind of moment. We had Andy Tho there, we had David Cotton there, we had a whole team of really bright people. And I can vividly remember on a Friday night when it was still just Blue Wolf, there was no acquisition in sight yet, and everybody had a little bit of adult beverage tucked away in their drawers, maybe. And on a Friday, those bottles would start coming out, right? And I can vividly remember sitting there talking to Andy and looking around this room and having a snapshot of like three thoughts simultaneously. One, the clock says seven o'clock. Two, the office is full. There are people sitting around talking with drinks. There are three conference rooms that are full of people chit-chatting. One of the conference rooms, people are whiteboarding something on the room and it's seven o'clock on Friday and nobody wants to leave. And that's how tight that office was for a period of time. And that's the one thing, what virtual existence makes it tough is to overachieve that sense of mission that allows you to say, you know what, we can outwork the competitor. We can out hustle, we can tell a better story. Some of the biggest cycles we won, Eric, you know, where we we punched above our weight. You know, we had a sense of mission. You had a sense of camaraderie. I used to set up Saturday morning breakfast club, I would call it. I, I would bribe them with breakfast and champagne to come in on a Saturday morning because in the Saturday mornings, we could spend two or three hours preparing a pitch with no interruptions. It was a, and we started out with a handful of people and Within a few months, there would be eight people in on a Saturday morning for a breakfast club to plan cycles. And that was, that's a hard thing to simulate. That's something that you need that kinship and that togetherness to be able to achieve. And, and Blue Wolf was pretty unique. You're right. Like, how do you teach an organization to punch above its weight in a virtual model? People stuck around that office, not because you were telling them they had to work until nine o'clock at night. Yeah. They wanted to be there. They felt a sense of community. These were their friends. They yeah. knew they were going to probably go out later and do whatever, yeah. but there was an electricity there. All of our offices had that for a period of time. They were. I had a buddy of mine from high school come and visit me one day and have lunch with me back when, when we were still at 220 Fifth Avenue. And we were out of space and people were sitting in the hallways and 
my buddy came in. We had lunch. He's like, this place is like a bee's nest. What is going on here? That is infectious. You do not that feel that over your computer screen. It's very hard to motivate people over a computer screen. It's very hard to create belief. We have to figure out that happy medium. As we search for the balance between in-person and virtual, I think when we start talking about how do we motivate virtual teams and how do we ensure that we are building that level of camaraderie, I think there just needs to be a bit more intention behind it, whether, you know, you are creating specific video content that is meant to engage and surprise and delight your employees, right? How do you start to think about your employees and building your employee culture the same way that you think about how you build those virtual relationships with customers? right? How you yeah. surprise and yeah. delight customers in virtual environments. How do you flip that and turn that lens yeah. inwards to understand how you can use those same techniques to engage with your employees? So that takes me to kind of, you know, the last of that question. So this was a long answer to a, a simple question, which was, you're right. You know, I think as a person, I think I have changed dramatically in the last probably five or six or seven years for probably a lot of different reasons. But I definitely was that person who thought as a guy who came from very humble background, hungry and work, I thought success was this. I thought you slept six hours a night, ate a meal and a half a day. You know, you drank six cup of coffee before 10 o'clock. You know, you pushed harder that there was always going to be eight people at the dinner table, there were going to be five rolls and everybody had to grab one or you were going to lose out, right? I just, every moment, you know, I never took vacations, always climbing, you know, being from a small area, for me, having access to money and a good life and making money, it was like being in one of those submerged cars under the river where you've got your head up, you've got so much oxygen and that's all you can get. And that money was the oxygen. And I was always like, I just got to get to the next level. I need my daughters at Notre Dame. You know, I've got things going on. And, and it took me a long time to realize that I was smoking the tires of myself as I was doing that over time. And I had this epiphany that when I was a 10 years old in this small town, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be like you could be some important person and live in the big city and live in a high rise somewhere and have all this responsibility and people would respect you. And that always seemed like some aspirational goal for me. And I realized I was living that life and getting less and less and less enjoyment from it. And one of the things people at Blue Wolf remember me for is my Hamilton montage at New York, right? Where I did my sales motivational mashup of IBM and Blue Wolf and Hamilton the play for a crowd. And I got a huge reaction. I put a lot of time and energy into it. What people don't know is that I was also really sick at that point in time, just worn down. You're always chasing deals. You know, sales is a very binary thing. It is either pass or fail. There's nothing in the middle, right? And for every salesperson who is crushing life, there's another eight salespeople who wake up in the middle of the night thinking about their life. And if a deal closes, I've got this. If the deal doesn't close, I've got that. And you live in that razor's edge all the time. And I remember after I executed on that, got a big reaction, hungover crowd, people loved it. I was going to fly home that Friday. Instead, I didn't leave there until Sunday 
I checked into the hotel and I was just sick. I stayed in bed and I was just so run down. And that was a little bit of a catalyst for me starting to think a little more seriously about where does meaning come from? What's really important? And I'm going to burn myself out and I still want to work a long time. And I started thinking through the lens of how do I take care of myself better? And I started, I went back to biking, started doing more reading. I read some stoic philosophy, meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which taught me and a lot of things about sort of um, your place in the world and what it means to have good character. And I started doing yoga and I learned yoga nidra meditation. And I started to figure out how to meditate a little bit. And I used to feel so tired that when I thought about what do you want to do on vacation, all I could think about for myself was if someone would just drop me on a beach and just drop some food and come back and get me in a week, that's all I need. I don't even need to do anything. Just let me be there. And I had a realization that if you know how to put yourself in the right mindset, the right meditative place, you can put yourself in that vacation mindset that you could create the dopamines that give you a sense of happiness that give you a sense of purpose and wellness. And so, you know, I've started to lean into that more and more. And the more that I've leaned into that and started to understand the principles of Ikigai and, you know, your sense of mission and profession and purpose. And, you know, I know Kate talked about flow. I read the book Flow, where it's the origins of that and what it means to feel like a violinist play when they're playing or a mountain climber when they're on the side of the ledge and you're in that flow. And I started... And I would get that feeling from biking because biking was very analog. I wasn't multitasking. I wasn't on all my devices. I was just on a bike with bat sonar so you don't get hit by a truck. So I really started finding a different sense of purpose for myself. So the dopamine, which is that neuromodulator that triggers that sense of happiness, it is actually the fuel of motivation. It's what makes you want to pursue things. You pursue things. It's a learned thing. And so... You go after it. That's the heart of a salesperson who is successful is fueled by the dopamine that winning a deal creates and that desire to do it over and over again. And learning how to tap into that, learning how to manage your breath and how to, you know, all of those things have just become a, a much larger interest to me over the last few years. And I feel like I've got more energy now and vitality in me now than I even did 15 years ago. That's insane, Randy. That's And it's amazing to hear. It's good yeah. to hear. So what are you reading, Randy? So I had a couple of great mentors who also were Blue Wolf employees. So Nilu Carr, who worked for Blue Wolf for a period of time. She's a wellness and leadership mentor based in New York. And Leanne Wong, who is an executive coach. You know, whenever I went through transitional periods of time, Leanne was amazing at coaching me, right? But Leanne introduced me to something that I don't know if you've ever heard of or not. It's called... Moth stories, M-O-T-H, a moth story. Mm -hmm. And a moth is a group of people and they will meet in for a dinner and there will be a theme. The theme might be perseverance or it might be resiliency or it might be happiness. And everybody has a dinner. And then after the dinner is over, everybody tells a very well-timed, five to seven minute story. It's called a moth story. And the story is supposed to be around the theme. So if your dinner was resiliency, you tell a five minute story of your experiences. 
and it ties back to the concept of resiliency. And so Leanne actually invited me in New York and went into an Italian restaurant, had a dinner, sat down. There were firemen, politicians, businessmen, amazing people, maybe 10 people. They all told this story. It was an amazing evening. Anyway, there is a book of moth stories called All These Wonders, and it is about 15 to 18 different stories, almost like a short story, but they're moth stories. It's an incredible book. It covers the gamut of human experience, and it's an amazing book to read. So All These Wonders is a recommendation I would make. All These Wonders. For people who like to tell stories too, it's a masterclass in how to tell a story. My favorite family novel is a book called The Secret History. It's a book about yeah. um, Greek students. Donna, Donna Tart, right? Donna Tart. I found that book when I was in Cincinnati years and years ago, and nobody knew this book for 20 years, and it, but it developed a cult following, right? You know it, right, Aaron? It's such a good book. It's a great book. Yeah, I've read it. I read that, and I read Goldfinch. Was Goldfinch was the other one she did. Yeah, yeah. The best scene of the secret history is when I forget the name of the characters, but the they're at like a prep school, like somewhere in the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. it's a liberal yeah. arts college. Yeah. The rich kid takes the poor kid to like some highfalutin restaurant yeah. for lunch. They're like teenagers, right? They drink their asses off and they're completely drunk. The whole works. And the rich guy tells the poor guy he forgot his wallet. And this is like a $300 lunch. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I forget how it was all phrased, but it was an amazing book. It was also tragic, if I remember correctly. Yes, yeah. That was the book that my daughter and I bonded her transition from childhood to adulthood because yeah. we had gone out for brunch and she had listed a list of books that she wanted to read and she had the secret history. And I said, how do you know that book? Literally nobody in 20 years has mentioned that book to me. She goes, I just saw. So we went out and bought that book and then she loved it and it was very influential for her as well. So um, I'm glad I didn't realize you guys knew that book. So that's my novel. Yeah, so I feel uh, like the secret history, like she won all the awards for the Goldfinch, but I actually, in my mind, feel like they were just making up for the fact that they didn't know about the secret history to give it all the awards because I actually think it was the better book. Secret history is definitely a better book. Yeah. I read The Goldfish because I loved The Secret History, mm -hmm. but The Secret History had a bigger impact on me, for sure. I agree. 100%. How fun is that, though, when you find a piece of fiction and you're talking amongst three people and you randomly have all read it? It's amazing. And you, like, that's pretty cool, right? Like, this was a good and, moment. And all got, all got the same reaction. Yeah. I know that <laughs> book. <laughs> Here's the bottom line. Go read more fiction. Yeah. Like, yeah. come on. That's our salvation. That's how we learn yeah. about ourselves. Yeah. That's how we learn about other people. It's how you develop empathy and compassion and introspection and per develop perspective. You know, we talk about sales and then we could talk all kinds of angles about sales and how you position things and all so much. But as Kim Morrow would say, people buy on emotion supported by data. They just don't buy on data alone. And in order to tap into that emotion, you have to know how to hit them in an authentic way. And the vehicle for that is usually a story. And knowing how to sell a story makes the difference. And they don't teach you how to tell a story in business school, right? That comes from another place. That comes from literature. That comes from a different school of thought. I sat in a windowless conference room in Schaumburg, Illinois, with you and Andy Tho and David Cotton and 
I have a visual of the people there. We there were who else was there? Like Melody was there. Like we had a great team. There were like ten yeah, of yeah. us with a bunch of IT people from Granger. And I watched David Cotton take an old engine part from some motor and he walked around the room and he talked about walking into a Granger store and what the experience was like and how this motor was so important and how it related to how they treat customers and how they could use data to treat customers better and invent the motor and distribute the motor of the future. And like, I remember that vividly. And we were like in fourth place in an RFP response for a multi-million dollar deal that we won. And we won that deal because of that meeting and that yeah. story yeah. and the setup that that team put into the creative process of how do we drag the emotions out of this windowless room? How do we drag the emotions out of these employees of this company that are literally going through the motions every day? If we can tap into their emotions, they're going to trust us. And that's what happened, right? Like that was the beauty of it. We were hyper obsessive about preparation for that meeting. We had an outline that was like a movie script with things running in the minutes and what the message was going to be and who owned the ball and what the asset was going to be. And Andy Tho had actually gone to Indianapolis, stopped in a Granger store, had a connection. They gave him the part, and that part was also the part that we were using in our product demo so that not only not only was he carrying yeah. this engine pump, but it was also the product he had positioning, it. and he had it in his hand. Yeah, We went to that kind of obsessive lengths, and we blew him away. There was eight or nine different consulting firms in that cycle, all the major SIs, and we won it. You've inspired me again. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for being here. All right, my man. This has been so much fun. So what do you think of Randy's talk, Aaron? I love Randy. I love that we can literally talk about anything and everything with him. I want to let everyone who's listening know we actually had to cut out quite a bit. So uh, we might release some bonus clips because there was just too much to fit into one. Randy also is like a, the great American story, right? Like he grew up in a small town in Michigan. His dad owned a small hardware store. Mm-hmm. He goes to Michigan State, which is public school, meets people, gets into the auto industry, figures out how the how Detroit works and how big automotive works. He gets into sales. He figures out how to get into technology. He goes through boom and bust cycles, which made him stronger and more resilient. And it's a great story. I think that Randy's story about moving from the automotive industry into the technology industry is one that everybody should just take with them and listen to over and over again in terms of learning about resilience and adaptability, especially as every industry keeps changing and, and reinventing itself. So being able to come at it with this sense of curiosity and wonder and possibility is something that I really got from his journey. And I think that that's something that everyone, again, can learn from because you don't have to be stuck. You don't have to be stuck. You don't have to commit to 
one industry or one line of work your whole life, reinvention definitely is possible, especially in the world that we live in right now. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. He's even in a different industry now. Like he's in textile, but he's in a whole different sector than he was at Blue Wolf. Reinvention is a very scary thing for people, but it's a very empowering thing. The great thing about the environment we're in, just the moment in time we're in as a country and a society is it's accepted. You can reinvent yourself. Your core values are transferable across industry, across jobs, across many walks of life. And that, that's what you bring with you. And Randy's definitely done that. Thanks for listening to our interview with Randy Rodriguez. We'll list the books and resources we mentioned in the show notes at customerobsessed.net. And don't forget to sign up for the Customer Obsessed newsletter to stay up to date and get bonus clips and exclusive content. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a Customer Obsessed moment.